customer renewal, customer satisfaction, that is number one. Make sure that you're surrounding yourself with great people. One is be persistent and the second is be adaptable. Robert Kiyosaki is the businessman and author best known for his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now there's a lot that I don't agree with Robert on in that book, but he does have one quote that sticks with me as deep, deep wisdom. The size of your success is measured by the strength of your desire, the size of your dream, and how you handle disappointment along the way. Now this sentiment perfectly embodies the journey of our guest today a visionary who's turned challenges into opportunities for success. So let's meet Mark Simpson. He's the dynamo behind Pillar, an interview intelligence platform that's designed to change the face of hiring. Mark's on a mission to make the hiring process faster, more efficient, and above all, equitable. But that's the not the only revolution that he's leading. As the world stands on the brink of a Gen AI explosion, Mark is steering Pillar through these uncharted waters navigating the tidal wave of interest in Gen AI and its potential impact on his venture. So strap in, grab your drink, and get ready for a deep dive into the world of a visionary who's transforming the hiring process and navigating the AI revolution. Here's to another adventurous journey, visionaries. Let's go. What do you consider your earliest entrepreneurial endeavor? And what sparked your passion for that? Thomas, it's an, it's an honor to, to be on here. Thank you very much for having me on. First off, my earliest entrepreneurial endeavor was outside the stuff you do as kind of kids and, and what have you. First professional one was something which actually failed. Ultimately, we started a company in my very early 20s. I was very naive. I'm not from kind of rich beginnings, not from really a business sort of background. Uh, my yeah. father was a, an engineer in a, in a power station. My mother was a part-time teacher. And I moved to, to London and I wanted to be in business and wanted to, wanted to sort of get involved in things. And ultimately started a company, you know, at, at the earlier days of, of, kind of kind of the internet, which was a travel comparison website. Ultimately, if you mm -hmm. think about Kayak, yeah. basically started a company that was very, very similar to what Kayak looks like today. But being very young, being very naive and not knowing the world of finance and all, all these things, you know, we, we grew this until we kind of ran out of money and didn't really, yeah. and then kind of fold in, but had some, had some sort of great experiences in just sort of getting a company off the ground and what it took to do that. My first successful company was Maximizer, which I started in, in later on in my twenties and it was a marketing software business. It was a, we created a category when we created that business and that was just a fantastic experience. So have a passion, have a passion for, for building companies. And I think part of it is, is maybe kind of in my really early career, I had a few bad managers. I had a couple of good ones, but I had a few bad <laughs> managers just get, get frustrated. And there's some sense in me that I just don't like the thought of conforming and see yeah. you know, businesses fun and exciting and different. And that's really what gets me up in the morning. Yeah. First of all, the honesty with your opening on, which I think is true for a lot of successful entrepreneurs I've met. Like, hey, first venture kind of didn't work out the way we hoped. But I always think that we actually learn more from the things where we fail at than the things we're successful at. I always tell people, you know, if I get it right, there's probably a million ways to get it right. And so I'm just telling you one of a million, but I can definitely tell you with 100% certainty what not to do based on the stuff that I got wrong. But I'm curious when you compare both journeys, you're obviously a very different person, not just in age, but experience. 
you know, when you think about this idea of the journey versus the destination and you compare your first enterprise to Maximizer, what felt most different about those journeys and what felt most similar? For me, in in the early days, it was just experience. I think the, the key thing, which is maybe a little bit of a theme, it's surrounding myself with the right people to mm. fill in my gaps and my weaknesses and everything in order to, to make something something a success. I think that you look out into the world at the moment and you look at TikTok and Instagram and what have you, and everyone's trying to portray their, the perfect lives. Nobody is perfect and nobody is perfect in business and everybody has weaknesses. And I think, you know, part of actually being a successful entrepreneur is overcoming those weaknesses, realizing what they are and overcoming yeah. them. So, you know, I think after kind of the first business sort of didn't get off the ground, you know, going through a period of reflection on that was actually really important to me. And I've had a few moments in my career where I have gone through periods of reflection and just sort of understanding myself, understanding my weaknesses. And if I ever yeah. wanted to do it again, just making sure those weaknesses were filled, what got me going and got me into a more successful kind of growing companies. Yeah. If you feel comfortable sharing, not to put you on the spot, but what's something that as you look back on, you're like, I used to not be good at that at all. And I think I've actually become very, very good at that through like sheer effort. And if so, what was the effort that you put in? In my very early 20s, I think it was just the basic understanding of financing a business and ultimately making sure that you structured the business and grew the business in, in the right way with uh, with the right sort of financing structure behind it. It's very important. Most startups actually fail through running out of money. That to me was a really significant sort of lesson very early on in my career around kind of the realities of of what money means and you know to a company and how to how to build a company um you know with yeah. the right sort of balancing financing as well as having just a fantastic idea and surrounding yourself with great people that deeply resonates i i sometimes like to call it the last mover advantage <laughs> that like <laughs> there, there's something to kind of having the right product out there, but often like the difference among competitors and who's going to win is just who kind of has the metal to stay in the game the longest. Yeah. And part of that is ultimately the team and all that stuff. And part of that is just like, what is your burn rate and how much do you have in the bank? And being really smart about managing that, I think is often underinvested in, but kind of shifting gears from the money to the other part that you mentioned, talking about learning really early on that the people were really important. Um, it's probably then no wonder that you ended up eventually starting a company like Pillar, right? Which fundamentally thinking about building intelligence around interviews is thinking about how you have companies think about building the right team and getting much more data driven around that. Um, there's a whole lot we could talk about in that space, but I'm particularly interested because um, as I've been digging out and seeing what the latest that's coming out of Pillar, there's a huge focus on kind of being AI driven. I think that was true from the beginning. There was probably a time where you guys were kind of talking a lot of gobbledygook for a lot of people. And then you look back over the last you know, year or so, and with the explosion of Gen AI, it feels like the hot thing everybody is after. How, if at all, has that affected your sales motion, your product strategy, and how you're thinking about, about your company? I've been quite fortunate in working in with machine learning and AI for 17 or so years. So the explosion in generative AI and large language models and what everyone is talking about now has, has been developed over you know, really decades. But you know, when ChatGPT put a front end on, on it all, everybody <laughs> realized yeah. the, the, the power of it, right? So it's fundamentally not change the way in which we're developing Pillar because we've always had a vision that 
large language models and generative AI, as, as it's called, is going to be core to building the platform and core to helping our customers solve the problems that they, they need to solve. I do think we're spending a decent amount of time just sort of helping both prospects and customers just sort of understand AI and understand the strengths, the weaknesses, what to look for and all of those things. And you know, we're actually going to be launching a newsletter around AI to try and demystify yeah. for, for the HR and particularly talent acquisition community. And we are trying to apply AI in the right way to solve companies' problems. And, mm. and I think that, that focus for companies on continuing to look at what are the problems in my business? How do I move my business forward and how do I solve them is, is the right way to think about the business. With generative AI, there are just new ways to do it. But that they will all surface up over time. I think, you know, the hype that is around generative AI will calm down and people will, you know, rationalize it and and refocus on not just wanting AI, but wanting to solve problems and, and looking around for you know, vendors, partners, internal resources, engineers, what have you, that can that can solve the problems that they need to solve. And, and those that realize that and do their research along those lines will actually, you know, gain quite a lot of ground and have probably a competitive advantage in their hiring and, and, and other areas. I really appreciate the long view there on, hey, it's a technology, but like ultimately businesses need to solve problems, not apply technologies. And so if you've not solved that part, not in there. I'd say in probably every single board meeting I have sat in over the last six months, the question hasn't been, hey, what are the big problems that we have and how might Gen AI solve them? It's really been, what are we doing with Gen AI, right? I have, you know, stories of whole departments that have just told like, hey, well, now that Gen AI exists, I'm expecting 25% like efficiency changes. Go figure that out. I'm curious whether you're actually running into that from your customer base and how, if at all, you're thinking about educating them or supporting them through that transition. I ultimately agree that that's where we end up. But is your advice to kind of just hunker the wave? Or is there something more proactive to do um, in this in this period of like excitement, but also like a lot of confusion? Let's be real. It is going to be huge. It's going to revolutionize the, the way the way you work. But I also want to temper that with it's not going to solve all of our problems tomorrow either. So yeah. what do we do in, in the short term? Well, well, it's really a case of helping understanding, helping demystifying, helping educate the market in which areas in which generative AI can help. And we don't know all the areas it can help now because we're yeah. still, you know, getting, getting our heads around it. And there are lots of sort of fantastic ideas um, that people are experimenting with and some of which will work and some of which won't, like any, yeah. any business, like any sort of revolution in uh, in technology. We're spending a good amount of time experimenting within our product and then helping the market sort of understand what works, what doesn't, where AI yeah. shouldn't be applied, both to push things forward, but also ethically as well in, in the market, which is clearly very, very important in, in our space. We're going through a period right now where we know some really good applications of generative AI. We can see yeah. some areas it works fantastically well and can actually help customers save a huge amount of time and save a lot of resources and you know allow them to focus on higher value work. We also see yeah. some areas where it's just not enterprise grade yet. It just doesn't, it, you know, it, it's a little dangerous. You couldn't roll yeah. it out to a large enterprise and just making sure that we're upfront and honest with our prospects and our customers when we're having these conversations and making sure that they, uh, they're they applying things in, in the right way.
very specific question around, you mentioned, I'm really quickly, if I understood it correctly, that there's also some experimenting from like a product roadmap perspective that you guys are doing internally. I'm not going to ask you to reveal any secrets, but I am going to ask you the practical question that I do get from a number of founders. When there's a moment like this, I think very often I hear one of two stories in retrospect. We didn't invest enough or we invested too much right? We kind of assumed we were going in one direction. I think the classic example is probably like the metaverse and meta, I think is on a lot of folks' minds right now. But I think on the flip side, all of the craze around Gen AI at Google, for example, I think comes from the sense that like, hey, Bard was like a weird Google X project for like too long. As you think about Pillar and kind of walking that tightrope, are there any, and the fact that you've like done this successfully twice before, right? Are there any rules of thumb you have, even just like pieces of advice for like a more junior CEO on that fine line between like, hey, there's something new I want to experiment. I don't want to go too far in the wrong direction. Certainly with any early stage company, the most important thing you could do is just keep a pulse with what your customers are telling you and how they're feeling mm. about things. And mm. pushing the envelope with, with your customers and talking to your customers all the time around how things can will settle. You roll out new features and if you yeah. really sort of sort of push hard in it and just get a sense of how acceptable it is what you're doing for them and and how how much that solves problems and, and work will take off. And there's an area that I think I learned sort of within my first startup and era that I've always had a lot of focus in. Even when you know acoustic my last company was 250 million in revenue, I'm still out there meeting customers. I think it's hugely, hugely important to just understand what they're going through, how they're understanding the market, what they're trying to solve, and really leaning into the higher value areas in which uh, which you, you can help them out. So I do think the generative AI is going to change the world. I do think it's worth investing in, but I think yeah. we need to do it alongside, you said, mm-hmm. walking the tightrope, which is a very good analogy. Um, I think that tightrope is just having an acute focus in what your customers are telling you and uh, and and truly understanding that and bringing that back into to the business, into the product roadmap and uh, and developing the, the right product from that point. You said it perfectly. Uh, I'll only say that I my background on the investment side is in traditional private equity rather than venture capital. And I do think that in some ways I have a lot of empathy um, for, for founders because I do think that like, my venture capital brethren, I think, did preach the gospel of growth at any cost and like that ultimately being what mattered. But coming on the P side or traditional P, I think most founders don't really understand the impact to multiples if you do end up going on the acquisition route, if you can have taken care of your margins and break even. Mm-hmm. Like fundamentally, what looks like a couple percentage points, I know on our end can look like hundreds of millions more dollars because the right mechanics are in there. And I I think in many ways, though, the last year has kind of woken us all up to the criticality of that across the board. I totally agree. I I look at building SaaS businesses, which is what what I've done. There's there's a key, well, there are a few metrics, obviously, but a key fundamental metric is renewal rates. And ultimately, that comes down to serving your customer and having the right product for your customer. And, you know, it's those renewal rates that are that are absolutely crucial um, and something we absolutely got right in Maximizer to, you know, to get in the multiples that we did and that, you know, our customers loved us. Our customers have, yeah. you know, renewed and they espoused about us and they 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 went to market talking about how, how great they were. And maybe on that note, actually, we've talked about margin. You've talked about kind of renewal rate. What's your true recurring revenue? Are there any other kind of metrics that matter beyond growth 
that you think maybe more junior founders aren't paying enough attention to? Yes. I honestly think that customer renewal, customer satisfaction, that that is kind of number one alongside yeah. you know growth and maybe a little bit business dependent you know we're mm. looking at usage metrics and when people get value out of it and but ultimately it really sort of feeds in making sure that you have a good margin so you're not spending tons more than you're making uh making sure that your customers are happy and, and renewing and uh, making sure that you're able to acquire those customers are uh, just kind of the crucial fundamentals of uh of growing a business successfully yeah One thing that just kind of reading through your profile and learning a bit about you was it keeps kind of coming up your efforts around philanthropy or giving back, right? I know you work with the Adam Cole Foundation. I'm just curious, and maybe if we take a step back thinking about your family of origin and culture of origin, do you see any connections between kind of where you started and how you think about giving back in your current role? And if so, what are those? Yeah, I, I do. It's something that I've sort of struggled with, with a balance of everything of uh, running a company yeah. and family and, um, you know, wanting to, to give back. It, it's something that, that has been kind of maybe a little bit of struggle and something that I've tried to be intentional about. And my, I, I didn't have a privileged upbringing and, um, mm. you know, we, I grew up in a, a very small town in, in South, Southwest England and, but had a fantastic sort of family, um, uh, around me to, to support me through, through my upbringing, you know, just had a vision for wanting to do more and breaking out and trying to, um, trying to do more in my life in the world and, and what have you from actually a relatively, relatively young, young age. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it was always fairly, fairly driven. And I just see so many other people that are driven in such a way. And, and, you know, I got some lucky breaks and I had mm-hmm. people to help me along the way and, um, you know, in, in places. And I, I, I want to make sure that I'm paying that back as well throughout my, my life. It's, I've sort of struggled to find the right amount of time for in, in periods yeah. of my, my career being, being really vulnerable. Um, yeah. and something through, you know, some years has kind of like slipped and, uh, um, but I think actually, Getting into Pillar and what we're what we're trying to do with Pillar, we've made it sort of really intentional. The company is being designed around, you know, giving candidates a fair chance of getting a, the right job in a fair and in an equitable way, and allowing companies to be able to hire based on skills rather yeah. than based on where somebody grew up, where someone went to school, or, or whatever that might be. So I think actually we've made it sort of really intentional in the foundation of Pillar to be able to not just help companies, but sort of help the market forward and help individuals um, as, as we go forward. So we've spoken about that when we formed the company. It's part of our culture and made a commitment for it. So, so it was a very intention. With Pillar, I've been very lucky to do it fundamentally as part of the company to, to yeah. try and help people get going forward. And I'm very excited about that. Very excited. Finally, I think as we come around the bend on this, you know, we've covered a whole swath of things, everything from kind of what was the journey, what you've learned, how we think about the technology, how we balance like where we go. I'm curious if you were trying to kind of boil this down around one or two key points as a mentor and investor for younger startup founders, what would they be? It's something I actually spent a little bit of time thinking about. There's so much mm-hmm. great advice out there. And I've spent an enormous amount of time, you know, reading books to try and make myself better and listening to podcasts to try and make myself yeah. a better yeah. you know, entrepreneur and all these, all these things. And it's probably very personal as well. The first thing I would say is make sure that you're surrounding yourself with great people. You know, people who've done what you want to do in the past or people who support your weaknesses or uh, people who, you know, 
play up your strengths or whatever whatever it might be. But surrounding yourself with with great people is is fundamentally important, I think, to um, to your success and, you, and your your happiness. People that bring you up rather than bring you down. Mm-hmm. Um, the second core for any anyone wanting to start a business, I think the two biggest things that that you you could possibly do is one is be persistent, and the second is be adaptable. Like there are many times where you're going to want to give up. Um, there are many times where things aren't working, uh, and having the ability to to break through those moments is ultimately mm. what's going to create success out of something that that could, that could fail. And the third thing kind of runs along the theme of a couple of things we've mentioned um, already. Actually, through this is just cherish your customers. So so mm. important. Uh, they mm. they will guide your business to to being successful if you truly listen to them. They are the fundamental, most important thing to a business outside of the people that you surround yourself with. You know, those are the three things. You know, surround yourself with great people, be persistent and adaptable, and uh, and cherish your customers are, are kind of the three things that I I've reflected on. I love those. It reminds me, and I'll close with this Bruce Lee quote: that the exceptional warrior is just an average man with laser like focus. And I just appreciate your wisdom on what you, from your perspective, anywhere, the things to be laser focused on um, in order to, to be that exceptional warrior. Um, I love that well, quote. Thank you so I love much, that Mark. Quote. Yeah, that's great, Thomas. <laughs> cool. I'm going to use that. I'll, I'll, I'll use that outside of this. <laughs> please, please do. Please. I, I stole it from Bruce Lee. So I'm happy to pass it along. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, friends. That wraps up our enlightening conversation with Mark. I hope you gained fresh perspectives and a deeper insight into the intricate journey of actually building a visionary venture. But before we conclude, there's one more crucial element we'd love to explore in venture visionaries behind the business. We've heard this story right from the top, but what about the experiences of those who work hand in hand with Mark to bring Pillar's vision to life? I'm excited to introduce a recurring segment, Spoken Stories, proudly sponsored by Spoken. This segment offers a deeper dive into the authentic, heartfelt, and inspiring tales of the real people behind the business, the employees, customers, and investors who make up the Pillar family. Why is this important to us? Well, because a visionary isn't merely a product or service. It's a rich tapestry woven with countless individual stories that are contributing to its growth every day. Now, our conversation with Mark was much longer and richer than what made it into the final cut. And one crucial aspect that stood out was the importance of values at Pillar, and in particular, the values of persistence and adaptability. Now, many companies boast about values, but I think for most, they're just buzzwords hanging on the office wall, right, or buried on onboarding handbooks. So I was intrigued to understand how the values of persistence and adaptability manifest in the day-to-day operations of Pillar. In our Spoken Stories segment, we collected a few voices that echoed those values. Now let's hear what they had to say. As an early stage company, adaptability and persistence are the name of the game. And where this really comes into play at Pillar is with our lead generation strategies. We're constantly reiterating on messaging and discussing topics that matter to our audience. And I think we all know that one of these recent hot topics has been AI. Now, in order to stay relevant, we've really had to adapt our lead gen strategies from the content we're using in blogs, webinars, in-person events, and more. Being part of a young company in an emerging space means the Pillar team is constantly iterating on processes. Similarly, when it comes to customer success efforts, that means being in a near perpetual state of adaptation and evolution. Every new customer has unique challenges, and every new customer has use cases that we've not encountered before. 
And while we've developed a solid library of best practices, there's still no one size fits all. But by being persistent and adaptable, we're able to find resolution and direction more efficiently than we otherwise would. It has been a really exciting couple of years here at Pillar. We have learned so much from our customers and from the talent acquisition leaders we connect with every day. Last year, we spent a lot of time learning how interview intelligence can help teams grow more effectively, and we use those learnings to adapt our product. For example, this is why we introduced Insights this year, to help our customers grow their teams more efficiently, effectively, and equitably. Designing and building software requires a willingness to constantly pivot and adapt. New technologies are introduced, users' needs morph and change, competitors release new features. To produce a product that stays relevant, we must fall in love with our users' unique problems, not with a single solution or roadmap item. The team must be willing to iterate on previous ideas, let go of things we thought would work, and constantly consider problems the user might face in the future. And there you have it, folks. The heroes of Pillar sharing their lived experiences and values. The authentic narratives that truly shape a venture. Until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and keep discovering the stories that exist behind the business. This is Venture Visionaries, and I'm Thomas. See you next week. <laughs>